You're listening to We're All All Right, the show that explores all the reasons we have to be hopeful, even joyful, about humanity and about our world today, despite what we see in the headlines. I'm your host, Phyllis Wilson. And welcome to season two. Thank you for being with me again. And if you're brand new to We're All All Right, welcome. As you may already know, in season one, I explored our individual relationships with the collective, otherwise known as all of humanity. The big question I was asking, how do we find ourselves and see ourselves and be ourselves in a chaotic and confusing world in which it can very often feel unsafe, even impossible to do just that? Now, in season two, I'm taking that question to a whole new level, a deeper level, a more granular level. This season is about identity. This season, it's personal. I'll be exploring our relationships with others, people or groups of people for whom part of their identity is something we might not entirely understand something we might not entirely agree with or even respect. The big question this season, can we allow others, can we be okay with others finding themselves and being themselves when what they find and who they choose to be is entirely different than who we are, what we prefer, or what we expect? In other words, can we see others as we see ourselves? And what better place to start than politics? (laughs) Did I just ruin it for you? Seriously, though, stick with me, because I promise this won't be like any political discussion you've ever had. What I'm diving into here is political identity, how we define ourselves as members of or as aligned with certain political parties, how we think about or define others as members of or in alignment with other political parties. And I'm wondering, what are we really doing when we adopt a political identity? And How useful is it anymore, I say in parentheses, to do so? I was born in 1973, which means I really grew up in the 1980s. That's when I really became or had the capacity to become aware of anything going on in the world outside my house or my family or my school. My mom was a Democrat. And so I was a Democrat. I lived with her 85 to 90% of the time, so of course I was. That's how it works when you're a kid. Side note for my non-U.S. listeners. As is often the case, I'll be centering this discussion on the political system of the U.S. because that's what I know. Yet, since this isn't about politics, I trust that you'll translate the essence of what I'm saying into your own experience. Also, for those who don't know, I'll add that Democrats are associated with words like liberal, progressive, and the left, 
and Republicans with conservative and the right. So back to the 80s and 90s. My dad, on the other hand, I remember being dismayed to learn, was a Republican, or I should say, and or maybe a libertarian, which for those who don't know is an ideology outside the left-right spectrum and something I'm not going to get into today or maybe ever. Anyway, here's where I'm going with this. While my mom was certainly more interested in and engaged in political happenings than my dad was, political differences among family, friends, or even the world at large were just never a big deal, never really much of a thing. Sure, when my elementary school held mock elections during election years, I remember my mom and I joking about the Republican kids and feigning light-hearted indignance about how many votes their side got. But there was certainly no real malice there. Even as I got older and started understanding more of the issues, people I met whose stance was the opposite of mine people including my dad, rarely elicited, or even deserved, much more than an eye roll. That's another thing. It seems to me, and I'm open to being wrong here or to be looking back through rose-colored glasses, it seems to me that political talk among everyday folk back then was actually about the issues, at least much more of the time. And issues are infinitely easier to simply disagree about and move on without making that disagreement mean something significant and relationship-altering about the other person, you know? But now, yowza, political talk or screaming, as it were, is almost never about the issues except when it's an argument about a soundbite version of the evil other side's position that is so stripped of context and nuance that it's lost all meaning. And it seems that being on the other side doesn't just mean something about you or them as a person. It means everything. It means wrong versus right. It means intelligent versus imbecilic. It means truth versus delusion, and it means coexistence only via distance and separation. I wonder, and please do share with me if you have any experience with this, what it's like to be a child with parents in a childhood like I had now, today, and what it's like to be those parents How much pressure must be put on them from the political atmosphere and those corresponding social norms that I just mentioned? I can only imagine the, if that's what you're teaching my kid, she won't be your kid for long kind of arguments. I mean, that's not all that far-fetched, right? Now, don't get me wrong, this is not an indictment on American society, one side or the other, or anyone else. I myself have gotten swept up in it too, as I'm sure you have. That's the nature of living in a society. We're affected by the people around us just as we affect everyone else. Like it or not, we're never alone, even with our thoughts. 
Wow, you can tell I'm all fired up, right? Okay, just a quick break to chill out for a second and talk about the other part of my life and work that I'm super passionate about, and that is coaching. I mentor other coaches, trainers, and consultants to radically up their coaching game and become the conscious leaders they're meant to be, all by learning to leverage the most powerful medicine on the planet, love. Have I piqued your interest? Awesome. I work with clients both privately in a one-on-one setting and in an intimate group program called The Mentor's Mastermind, and I would love for you to get in touch. Head on over to phyllis.wilson.pw and click on Talk to Phyllis. So, how did we get here? Well, as much as I'd love to answer that question and maybe provide us all with an easy solution, I, well, I can't. (laughs) Not in a single podcast episode anyway. But what I can do, and what I will do right now, is to give you a five-minute history, a little glimpse into the background of the Democratic and Republican parties as a way of contextualizing what we're really talking about when we talk or think about party affiliation and hopefully start to detangle all of us from this idea that's become so embedded into our society and our everyday life that political identity has any real meaning at all, let alone one of the most meaningful things we can know about one another. So here we go back to the early 1800s. The Democratic Party formed around the presidential candidacy and election of Andrew Jackson, who, among other claims to fame, owned 160 enslaved people, and whose defining act as president was the Indian Removal Act of 1830, which forced Native people from their land and effectively though not literally, to be fair, I guess, confined them to territories created expressly for that purpose. That was just the opening act of the Democratic Party's white supremacist platform. It was they who fought to expand the United States West into not just native lands, but territory that belonged to Mexico all under the doctrine of manifest destiny, which held that the white man was ordained by the divine to control the whole of the North American continent. Because of course, can you hear my eyes rolling? And then in the mid-1800s, when the question of whether new states entering the Union should be allowed to own slaves Here come the Dems with their fierce argument for, because their strongest supporters were Southerners and the majority of slaveholding states were in the South. It was the newly formed, at that time, Republican Party from the North that came out against the expansion of slavery. Now, if you haven't heard any of this before, you might be thinking, is Phyllis saying the wrong words? Southern support for Democrats? And weren't those torch-carrying white supremacist 
you know what's in Charlottesville in 2018, right wing Republicans? Yep, I hear you. And nope, I haven't mixed them up. This was indeed the early history of the Democratic and Republican parties. It was soon after, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, that the two parties effectively switched their platforms and became closer to what we now think of as Democrats and Republicans. There's a whole lot more to how this went down than I have time to convey, but essentially, as the U.S. expanded, so did huge business opportunity. And so, naturally, business tycoons with massive wealth soon followed, and that massive wealth soon found its way into powerful influence over political decisions and government. And that created the conditions for two things. First, a strong movement against that kind of wealth and influence being held by such a few. And second, the very concept of big government or small government. In other words, how much of a role should government play in regulating business practices and in the day-to-day lives of its citizens? Ultimately, it was the Democrats who garnered the most support for the progressive idea of quote-unquote big government, taking a significant role in improving the lives of its citizens, which also tended to mean more regulation for big business. And since by this time, big business didn't need as much from the government as it once did, because by now, infrastructure had been built and other basics like a money and tax system were in place. Now there was an opening for a party that championed their needs, which essentially meant keep government out of our hair and out of our bank accounts. And that opening was filled by the Republican Party. It became the conservative party of small government and big business and the Democratic Party became the progressive party of big, activist government. Now, to be crystal clear here, it is not like the Democratic Party turned a moral corner at the turning of the century, and it's not like the Republican Party was ever anti-white supremacy. Civil rights legislation didn't come about for decades, And it was neither perfect nor a permanent solution, as we all know. Lots to dive into with this, and as I've said, this one podcast episode can't do it all. My point with this history lesson is this. Red, blue, right, left, conservative, progressive, Democrat, Republican. These are labels, not identities. They can't possibly capture the entirety of an ideology a set of beliefs or principles, a platform, or a lived and living experience, even of an entire group of people. They never have captured those things, and they never will, because all of those things, beliefs, principles, ideologies, the experience of living in the world, these things change all the time. So, what it means to be aligned or affiliated with a party, a label, it changes all the time. Which means it doesn't mean much at all, does it? 
And besides, even though we still talk about U.S. politics as if it really is red versus blue, left versus right, with a dash of purple, green, and center thrown in now and again for extra flavor, the reality is our collective ideologies fall along a spectrum that contains at least nine groupings. This, according to the Pew Research Center's 2021 political typology study titled Beyond Red versus Blue. I'll talk about that more next. So let's do a little thing I like to call a thought experiment. I'm going to pose a hypothetical scenario that's highly unlikely to happen, yet Considering it is a fantastic way to get to the very heart of the matter. And you know I'm all about the heart. Here it is. Elections without political parties. Now, setting aside any questions of logistics and assuming that the candidates would be honest about their positions on the issues, because again, this is hypothetical, Can you imagine what a difference it would make in how engaged we are in the process of self-governance, in how we vote, and in how we think about and treat one another, especially at election time? For a little more context around this, I would invite you to check out the Pew Research Center's Beyond Red vs. Blue study, which you'll find a link to in the show notes. You can also take their political typology quiz to find out where you fall among the nine groupings they identify along the political spectrum. The quiz is U.S.-centric, of course, but if you're not from the U.S., it might be interesting to substitute every mention of the U.S. or the country for your own country, or answer questions based on what you perceive to be true about U.S. policies and ideologies and see where you fall and what it means. Well, more on what it means in a minute. Back to my scenario. What if, instead of showing up in front of people as the Republican candidate or the Green Party candidate or even the outsider left candidate, to use an example from the Pew study, What if those running for office got up there and told us their positions? And not only told us, but explained their positions on the most important issues of the day. And yes, I agree it would be chaos. (laughs) But again, I'll remind you to set aside those kinds of logistical and rational arguments. (laughs) Can you imagine we might all read more and, I don't know, create fewer memes? Can you imagine what it would do to debates? We might actually learn something, and something constructive and instructive at that, about the candidates. Or what would it do to news reporting? Might we see a triumphant return of real journalism? Well, sure, would it really be a return? Good question. I talked about that in episode eight of season one. It's entitled Media, where truth, in quotes, meets human nature. You can check that out. Back to my point. Can you imagine that that kind of in-depth discussion about sincerely held beliefs, the reasons and experiences behind those beliefs, 
and the perspectives that those beliefs inform, can you imagine that that might actually change how we, everyday people in our everyday lives, talk to and understand one another? So my friends, considering all of that, I have an invitation for you. Actually, I have two. First, do check out the political typology quiz and read up on the nine types. And if you're interested, read more about their study, how they went about their research and their analysis. In my opinion, it at least illuminates the many, many shades of purple, you know, red plus blue makes purple, that actually make up our collective political ideologies. And anytime we can see evidence that we're more alike than we tend to believe is a good thing in my book. And, and, and. When you take the quiz, don't put too much stock in the results. Hold them lightly, if at all. Because like any and all typology or personality quizzes, the results only mean what we make them mean. And if we're not being conscious about it, we collectively can quite easily go from red versus blue to red versus lilac versus violet versus indigo versus cobalt versus cerulean. You get my point. Besides, and you can let me know if you have a similar experience, some of those questions on the political typology quiz were damn near impossible for me to answer. Not because my answer was in between two options, but because it was completely outside the realm, the universe of the question. Like the one about the idea that the U.S. might be better than other countries, or if other countries are better than the U.S. Huh? Better? How? Or what? I mean, but why? (laughs) Anyway, I'll leave that one there. My point is that quiz and others like it is useful and it's limited. In fact, I'm going to dedicate an entire episode this season to typologies, so stay tuned. Here's my second invitation. So often, and maybe always, when we think about the political or ideological other side, we're thinking about this anonymous, faceless mass of people who are, depending on the context, I suppose, soulless, profoundly stupid automatons with no opinions or thoughts of their own, and no reason, no evidence or experience to back up those sound bites they're always spewing. Or we think of a singular figure, a politician, maybe a media personality, who is, in our mind, the monstrous poster child of the other side. And yes, I'm definitely including myself here. Again, I've absolutely been guilty of this. Yet, keeping the other side anonymous and monstrous is exactly what perpetuates their being sides. It's totally human to do this, by the way. It doesn't make us wrong or bad or lacking compassion. It's actually a protection mechanism because it's really, really hard and uncomfortable to face and to be with 
the reality that someone we love or care about, and sometimes that anyone at all could possibly think and feel so differently about something than we do, especially if it means, or we think it means, that love or that respect can't coexist with this particular difference of opinion. So, back to that invitation. Next time you find your thoughts wandering toward the other side and all the stories and ideas and perceptions you have about who they are and what that means, try bringing to mind someone you like or love or someone you respect who actually does hold some of those views and opinions or even totally identifies as a card-carrying blank. And see if your heart doesn't soften just a little bit. I'll be practicing right along with you. You can find me and all episodes of this podcast at phyllis.wilson.pw. And hey, I've got something new for you. To get each episode into your inbox weekly, plus additional commentary and resources from me, head on over to my website, that's phyllis.wilson.pw, and enter your email address to subscribe to my brand spanking new newsletter. If you're on Instagram, you can find me at allrightpodcast. That's a great place to share your thoughts and questions about each episode. And finally, if you haven't already done so, don't forget to hit follow in your favorite podcast player so you never miss an episode of We're All All Right. Right.